Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Ian Basson. Ian is the former associate White House counsel in the Obama administration and is now the executive director of Protect Democracy. Welcome one and all. Ian, you must be very busy these days because (laughs) as we keep saying on this podcast week after week, it really is one of those historical moments where you do have to ask yourself on an ongoing basis, what are we doing to protect democracy when it does seem to be vulnerable? So why don't you sketch out exactly what protect democracy is before we get into some more specifics? Sure. So protect democracy is a cross-ideological nonprofit, and uh, I think we probably span the gamut even broader than you proposed here and that we are progressives, moderates, conservatives who are concerned that American democracy is in danger of going down the road that so many other democracies have gone down in the early days of the 21st century where illiberal autocratic leaders have risen and displaced democratic regimes. We've seen that across the world in the last 15 years and it's pretty clear now that the United States is no exception and so we formed in early 2017 with the explicit mission of preventing American democracy from declining into a more authoritarian form of government. Okay. And so concretely, what are some of the steps that you've taken, that your organization has taken either yourselves or in concert with others? Well, I think the most important success, and I think this is a success for the nation that we should celebrate, is that last fall there was an actual attempt to overturn the legitimate results of an American election. We now know more than we even did then that Donald Trump was willing to go to every length to try to keep himself in power, even though the voters under the rules that existed at the time did not want that. And so we were part of a coalition that it well in advance of the 2020 election, I think correctly anticipated the precise steps that we expected that the sitting president was going to take. And those steps were first, to try to make it harder for people to vote by putting up barriers to voting, especially for those he expected not to support him. Second, to prematurely and falsely declare victory the night of the election and try to claim that all those mail ballots that were being counted later were fraudulent and didn't count. Third, to barrage the courts with litigation that was designed to serve two purposes. One, to try to amplify and validate those false claims of fraud. And second, really to try to delay states from being able to certify results by tying the question up in court. And then fourth, if he was successful at kind of creating doubt and delaying certification, then induce state legislatures in states where those legislatures were controlled by the Republican Party to step in and send a slate of electors to the Electoral College that were in favor of Donald Trump, even if the people of their state had voted otherwise. And then finally, fifth, ideally by procedure, although if not by force, get Congress to accept that alternative slate on January 6th. We anticipated those five steps about a year in advance and built a coalition that worked to prevent each one of those from actually succeeding. And we can talk about some of the the details in there, but one of the, the key things really, I think, was making sure that when the president claimed the night of the election, that he had won and that all of the late ballots being counted were fraudulent, that we had pre-inoculated the American public to that red mirage argument through working with so many people, including many people on this call, to get people to understand in advance that that was not the case and to to dismiss that. And I think as a result, he convinced 30, 35, maybe 40% of the public, but not 52. But obviously what we're concerned about now is that he and his allies are trying to reverse engineer each one of those steps to make them more likely to succeed next time where in 2020 they failed. So as you're very well aware, there is a raging debate right now about what should be the priorities of the Democrats while they have the majority in Congress. And some people say, well, they should enact the voting rights changes. Some people say they should, including yours truly, they should reform the Electoral Count Act to make it less possible to have competing slates of electors creating havoc when the time comes to count the electoral votes. 
Some people think that the Democrats should try to compensate for the structural advantage that Republicans enjoy, for example, in the United States Senate by adding states, Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia, and so on. So so those are some of the things people are debating. What would be if Ian Basson were making his wish list and it were going to be whisked over to the Oval Office and magically made law? What would you, or if it's even a law, but what would your priorities be? Well, you named a couple of them there. And so number one and two would be passing what is now the Freedom to Vote Act, which is the compromise legislation that Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Sinema have gotten on board with, um, and also a reform to the Electoral Count Act. And the reason those are both critical, um, you alluded to why the Electoral Count Act is critical, the reason why the Freedom to Vote Act is critical is because right now what we've seen in the last nine months have been a spate of legislation introduced and many bills passed, largely in states with unified Republican control, that would both make it harder for people to vote and in a new and perhaps more disturbing twist, change the way that elections are administered, the way that votes are counted, and the way that winners are certified to make it possible in some states for hyper-partisans to simply take over the management of elections and the outcome if they don't like the direction things are heading. And we're already seeing that play out, for example, in Georgia, where the Republican-controlled legislature is trying to replace the Board of Elections in heavily Black Atlanta, Fulton County, because frankly, and this is pretty obvious, they didn't like the results of the last election. And one of the things the Freedom to Vote Act would do in Title III of the bill is mitigate or eliminate the danger that those measures could actually pose to elections in states around the country. So I would I would do those two things. But the other things that I think are really important, and, and, and some of them Um, are also before Congress, and then we can talk also at the state level. But Congress is also working on three other issues that I think are critical for lifting up kind of the strength of our democracy. So one, there's a bill in Congress called the National Security Powers Act, which actually is a cross-ideological bill. It was introduced by the Democrat Chris Murphy, the independent Bernie Sanders, and the conservative Mike Lee. And what it would do would be rebalance powers from the executive to the legislature on a host of important issues from emergency powers to war powers to arms control to international trade. And the reason why that's so important is because, and I think on this point, uh, we go back to de Tocqueville and how prescient he was. One of the things de Tocqueville warned about when he visited and wrote about the early United States was that if you had a presidential system and if you gave that presidency too much power, then every election for the chief executive would become an all or nothing do or die election for both sides. And both sides would resort to a by any means necessary approach to those elections. And just think about what presidential elections feel like today. It's remarkable how accurate de Tocqueville was. And what has happened to, to sort of bring that premonition to reality has been that over the last several decades, Congress had just abdicated a lot of its powers to the executive, sometimes intentionally yeah. and sometimes by accident. Can I, can so I, I think interrupt you, to, you right yeah, there? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. this is a subject that interests everybody on this panel. It's come up frequently. My question is, isn't it more difficult to get Congress to assert its natural powers than simply passing a bill. I mean, isn't part of this the whole ecosystem of the way they raise money, the way they get their message out, the fact that they rely so much on television and social media and so forth? They really don't want the power. That's why they've given it up. I think you're absolutely right. And actually, to loop back, that's one of the reasons why I think that there's actually a prospect for passing reform to the Electoral Count Act, because what reforms to the Electoral Count Act would do would be essentially to sort of take away from sitting senators and members of the House some of the powers that the currently confused Electoral Count Act gives them and get them out of the position that Mike Pence found himself in last time, where he was between a rock, a hard place, and a noose. My guess is, since even the most cynical members of Congress are good at abdicating powers, this is one where they would like to not be the center of the fight on January 6, 2025. So just yes, you're absolutely right. There are a whole bunch of structural reasons why it's going to be hard to get Congress to do some of these other things. But that's one case where actually we can lean into what Congress is good at abdicating and actually get a a very positive (laughs) reform for our democracy. Right. Okay. Damon Linker, I'm going to call on you next. You have some thoughts. 
I mean, only to say this is all very good and very important work, and I'm grateful that uh, Ian is out there on the front lines trying to get it done. It's it's hard. I mean, you know, corralling kittens is difficult. How do you do it in a continent-wide democracy of 330 million people with all kinds of people deliberately out there trying to make things even more confused and more difficult, lying and all kinds of other considerations at work? I guess the only like very mildly critical thing I would say is, is in terms of prioritization, I think when it comes to the issue of state laws since the last election that seem to be designed to make it, quote, harder to vote, in my view, that should be very much deprioritized in favor of these other more procedural questions, both at the state level when it comes to the procedures involved in certifying votes and so forth, as well as all the way up to Congress with what happens on January 6th and the Electoral Count Act. That's because we had the pandemic in 2020. uh, And because of that very specific situation, a lot of laws around the country were loosened, made it easier to vote, greatly expanded mail-in voting, all kinds of other provisions, making it so that it's easier to vote. Now, I personally, if you ask me, is this a good thing or a bad thing? I would say, yeah, it should be as easy to vote as possible. I personally wouldn't have a problem with having election day be a holiday or maybe even a few days in a row uh, so that people could vote as easily as possible, with as short of a line as possible, and so forth. However, there are all kinds of things. If you ask me personally, I would come down on one side and other state legislatures would come down on the other. I don't think that if we're talking about, say, the baseline 10 years ago versus the baseline on election day 2020 and states move from what we had uh, on election day 2020 back to something kind of in between where we were 10 years ago and last November, that that constitutes a, quote, threat to democracy. I think it's obnoxious and unfortunate if you're going to make it a little more difficult to vote this time rather than the last time, but it's not a kind of, as you will, like a regime-level threat to the functioning of American democracy. So I would prefer to see Democrats especially try to disentangle Uh, these different concerns, because the much bigger problem, in my view, is that in the end, you could make it so that you could vote for three months in a row any day you want, and Donald Trump or a similarly-minded Republican could use these same kind of procedural techniques to subvert that vote and lie about it and overturn the results. So I would want to disentangle the two. Ian, does that resonate with you at all? Or do you really think that the other category of issues are as pressing? Well, I think those are the most pressing issues. So in in that sense, it does resonate. I think that the compromise bill that's been put forward by the Congress was an attempt to go somewhat in that direction, perhaps not as far as you might want it to go, but it was an attempt to go somewhere in that direction and say, hey, there was a whole bunch of things that we wanted to do when the Democrats introduced the original HR1 in uh, January of, of 2019, that now actually we need to focus on the most important aspects of that. And the fact that it's got now the the support of all 50 Democrats in the Senate, frankly, suggests that it is in a good spot because I don't think there is any scenario in which any Republican in the current Senate is going to support any measure around protecting elections or voting because they are right now, unfortunately, too beholden to Donald Trump and he will do everything to stop that. And given that, I think that the the precedent that the Democrats need to look to right now is the 14th and 15th Amendments, which, as we all know, were passed with only Republican support in the aftermath of the Civil War because the Democratic Party at the time was committed to maintaining the whatever vestiges it could hold on to of the pre-war Confederacy in the South, and they were going to oppose those things. And the Republicans understood that for the Union to survive as a liberal democracy, as a free and fair democracy, they needed the 14th and 15th Amendments, and they were willing to do it on a party line vote. And I think that's what this is going to come down to ultimately for the Democrats as well. Okay. I'm coming to Bill Galston next, but I want to interject one quick question first, and that is 
I have certainly been in agreement with others that there really isn't any comparison between the threats that the Republican Party presents to the country right now versus the Democratic Party. I disagree with the Democratic Party on a lot of things, almost everything, I would say, (laughs) most issues. But I do think they're the only sane party left in America at the moment. Nevertheless, I want to press you on something, and that's this. Denying the legitimacy of elections though Trump has taken it to unprecedented levels. He's not the first to do it. And somebody that did do it quite recently was Stacey Abrams in Georgia, who refused to concede and said that the election had been stolen when, from what I can gather, there really was not evidence for that. Was what she did harmful? Look, I think there were in that election a lot of steps taken by the then Secretary of State Brian Kemp to try to give himself as a candidate an advantage in his run for governor. We actually at Protect Democracy brought a lawsuit against Kemp within about 72 hours of the election because as the sitting Secretary of State, he was going to preside over the recount because it looked like the race was going to be within the margin that that sort of required a recount in Georgia, which would have put, put him in a position of presiding over a recount between two candidates, one of which was himself. So we actually brought a lawsuit citing a Anthony Kennedy Supreme Court opinion that that stands for the basic principle under the Due Process Clause that no person should be a judge in their own case. Um, And in the emergency hearing for that case, Kemp actually resigned his Secretary of State role, I think largely in part because he saw that he actually was going to accede to the the governorship and it, it really looked ugly for him to preside over the recount. But that was, you know, of a set of things that he was doing to try to tilt the landscape in his advantage. I think it was entirely fair of Abrams to object to those things during the campaign. Now, whether at the end of the campaign she struck the right balance in terms of how she treated the end result is a much tougher question, Mona. I think that's what you allude to, which is, do we have to accept essentially that even if we don't like the rules that were in place, and even if we think those rules were unfair in some way, if they were blessed by the powers, whether they be legislative powers or judicial powers at the time, doesn't our system require us to accept them? And I think in hindsight, if I could have helped her craft some of that sort of language she used, probably would have crafted a little differently because of the the norm it sets going forward. But I wouldn't agree that that election sort of passes the kind of international free and fair standards because of the role that Kemp played as both the candidate and the administrator and, and how he went beyond, I think, sort of the, the fair balance of, of that responsibility as Secretary of State. Okay, fair enough. Bill Galston. Well, I just point out for the record that although I'm sympathetic to Stacey Abrams' efforts to register everybody in the state of Georgia, I know of no evidence that 55,000 votes were stolen or suppressed. And I think in the interest of truth and fairness, that needs to be stated. This is what the lawyers call an argument against interest, but (laughs) I think it's true. That's an Uh, exception to the hearsay rule, by the way. (laughs) I don't have a statement to make, but I do have, this is not a rhetorical question, but a genuine question, you know, calling on his expertise. For the benefit of our readers, let me read some language from the Constitution that Ian probably knows by heart. It's from Article 2, Section 1. It reads as follows. Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. Ian, what is the 21st century meaning of those words in your view? Oh, Bill, I'm so glad you brought up that clause. And I (laughs) I fear that we all as Americans are going to learn that clause by heart over the next couple of years. And I really hope I'm wrong about that. But here's the meaning of it, I think, right now, which is as a technical matter, it means that the state legislature sets the manner by which a state will decide which electors it will send to the Electoral College. And for roughly 100 plus years, I think maybe with the exception of South Carolina was the last state to do it, every state has essentially said the way we will decide on which electors to send to the Electoral College is we will hold a vote of all eligible citizens in our state. And depending on which way they vote, that's the electors that we will send. Now, 
the question that is going to come up and that has already been sort of introduced by members of sort of Trump's allied camp is that what it actually means is that any electoral rule at all, any electoral practice at all, anything that speaks to which electors ultimately are sent, that is not explicitly stated and passed by the state legislature is actually invalid. So for example, if the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, because of a pandemic and an expansion of vote by mail and a slowdown in the federal mail says any ballot that is received within three days of election day shall count, because that was the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that said that, and it ultimately speaks to who wins and which electors are slated, and it wasn't the Pennsylvania state legislature, there are some in Trump world, and and frighteningly perhaps even on the United States Supreme Court, who would say that Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision is invalid. Same would go for a secretary of state or a governor or a board of elections. Anything they do that isn't explicitly endorsed by the state legislature doesn't count. That's one version of that interpretation that would be really problematic, but here's a worse one. Um, Last year, a group that we helped put together called the National Task Force on Electoral Crises, which is a a cross-ideological group of experts uh, that run the gamut from the former chair of the Republican National Committee to the head of the NAACP LDF, put out an analysis that I think is the right now the governing analysis of, of this doctrine known as the Independent State Legislature Doctrine that says, look, if a state, let's just say Michigan, for example, decides by statute that the electors in Michigan shall be selected by who wins the popular vote in the state of Michigan. And on the first Tuesday of November, the people of Michigan vote and they select the electors for candidate X. If the state legislature at some point thereafter comes in and says, you know what, we're worried that the election really was marred by fraud and we're not sure who really won. So we're going to send the electors for candidate Y. I think it is pretty clear, the the National Task Force said, that is invalid, that the state legislature cannot do that. Once they've made a decision, they cannot rescind that decision for a whole bunch of reasons. I fear that there are some people in the Trump world, I'm thinking of people like John Eastman here, who are going to say, nope, if the state legislature wants to pick its electors at any point, it can do that. And if they can convince five members of the Supreme Court to agree with them, woe is our democracy in trouble. Linda, over to you. Once again, the Claremont Institute is covering itself in glory. Uh, Eastman, notably affiliated with Claremont, the uh, legal guru for the insurrectionists. So what's your contribution to this at the moment? I mean, I know you are very familiar with Claremont. I am. I will say that what John Eastman tried to do was basically after, really after the safe harbor dateline had passed and after the electors had been appointed in each state, he wanted then to be able to go back and throw out those electors in states where there had been allegations of fraud. And then if you took those states out, then I guess you would reduce the number of votes necessary to elect the president. And by their calculation, Donald Trump would thereby have won. Because when you throw it to, excuse me for the interruption, but when the race is thrown to the House of Representatives to be decided there, the states vote by state delegation not right, individually. but that was his second. Uh, right, but that, that was would, that was why it would have led to Trump's uh, victory because he would have pulled out the swing states and there would have been more Trump states than Biden states. I think Mona, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Eastman had two scenarios. The first was the one I was describing, and the second was to have the Congress itself right. decide. Okay, so I think well, there were actually two proposals that he was suggesting, that they could do it one of either two ways, but either way, Trump would have been elected. And so Claremont is defending this. They're fundraising on this. They have basically uh, attacked organizations, including the Federalist Society, for canceling John Eastman. The American Political Science Association was another organization they said had canceled the Claremont Institute, would not allow it its participation uh, in their annual conference. So look, there's a lot of backroom maneuvering that's going on in anticipation of the next election to try, I think, to subvert the will of the majority of American voters. 
And I guess the question and the issue that Ian addressed is, well, how do we how do we best make sure that doesn't happen? And I think you are absolutely right, Mona, that the single most important thing we can do is to bring the Electoral Count Act up to date, uh, bring it into the 21st century and amend it to be clearer than it is. But I'm not sure that I'm willing to go as far, even as the compromise legislation that Senators Manchin and, and Klobuchar have proposed, because it would do some other things that as a conservative, um, being a conservative always means you're a little bit reluctant to make dramatic change and particularly make dramatic change in response to a specific act or, you know, something that may be a one-time occurrence. So, you know, I'm not that enthusiastic about even the Manchin Act. Can you can you be specific about sure. the, yeah, what you didn't Okay. About. Some of the things that concern me, it may be well and good to have rules that are consistent for federal elections. I think that's something that has to be thought about. I think we have to have hearings about it. I think we have to think about it. I don't think we do it rashly, but I'm open to that as a possibility. The areas that concern me, though, are in the gerrymandering area. The courts have have said you can't engage in racial gerrymandering, but they've been very reluctant to prevent partisan gerrymandering. And this, this law would essentially try to throw sort of to a good government committee, essentially to oversee the redistricting in each state. And again, I'm, I'm not sure that's right. I'm also wary about interfering in the way in which, you know, these so-called dark money organizations can involve themselves in elections. I mean, I've always been one that thought that anybody should be able to spend any amount of money uh, trying to influence an election so long as the information about who it was that contributed was in fact open. Now, dark money groups obviously protect that information. But I do think that issues committees and organizations that, that want to advertise during elections have the right to do so. I think that doesn't harm our elections. And and I do not believe that there's too much money in elections. I don't think that has been as corrupting an influence as many people on the left do. So so those are some of my concerns about the Manchin-Klobuchar bill. Mona, could I beg to differ? You bet. That's what <laughs> we're here we're for. Here, I want to <laughs> beg to differ on one sort of macro point and then actually strongly endorse something that Linda said. So the, the macro point I would beg to differ on, and this maybe goes to both Linda and Damon, is there are things in the compromise bill that I don't necessarily prefer, and there are things I wish that were in it that are not. It's not the exact bill that I would draft, as it, clearly it doesn't seem like it's the exact bill that you would draft. But we are not in a situation where we can have a bill that all three of us agree is perfect. We're in a situation where I think, as we've all alluded to, where our democracy is in existential crisis. And right now, Mona, as you said, the only sane party right now is the Democratic Party. They're having enough trouble keeping their own caucus and coalition together on this. And this is the bill. And this bill is not going to fundamentally change. And so while I totally understand and appreciate the concerns that Damon and Linda have raised, at this point, the question is, are we going to get this bill through and give ourselves a fighting chance against the absolute assault on our democracy? Or are we going to keep arguing about it not being perfect and miss the opportunity? I think this is one of those moments where we all have to put aside some of our differences, accept that it's not perfect and say, but we actually just have to get behind it because we need it. The place where I really want to strongly endorse Linda, and I'm glad she said this because I actually think I wasn't forceful enough in my prior answer is, Linda called those people who might put forth some independent state legislature doctrine or sort of other electoral kind of shenanigans, the, the lawyers for the insurrectionists. And I think that's really right and really important. I mean, I was talking about one interpretation of the, the state legislature doctrine that Bill referenced as if it was some legitimate, viable legal argument. It's not. It is a legal argument for insurrectionists. And one of the things we need to do, us and everyone else who's talking about it, is need to be very clear. Any lawyer who gets behind that view of the state legislature doctrine is lawyering for insurrection. Okay. We also have the election in Virginia, and there's a governor's race going on, Terry McAuliffe versus Glenn Youngkin, and uh, a lot rides on how this turns out. Uh, there will be a furious bout of interpretation, whichever way it goes. And so some of the issues that have come up 
are, of course, having to do with the pandemic, mask mandates, vaccines, abortion has come up. But it seems that one huge issue that was kind of a sleeper until recently is critical race theory and what's happening in the schools. I'm going to come to you first, Damon. Arguably, Terry McAuliffe made a serious blunder in the final debate when he said regarding schools, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Yeah. I mean, in general, I would say that if we can, and and maybe for the next like one minute, we can do it. If we bracket Trump, (laughs) it's the specificity of Trump and his distinctive, polarizing, loathsome way of speaking and engaging with politics in our country. And instead, look at the Republican Party today and the stances it's taking on a series of cultural, political, and economic issues. I think that the terrain is shifting in ways on a bunch of fronts that could be very favorable to Republicans. One of them is this business about critical race theory being taught in schools and coming down from HR departments and businesses and so forth. I think that that stuff is a real vulnerability for Democrats, and McAuliffe just walked right into it in the debate. Not only in that statement about it sort of not being the responsibility of parents to care, but but sort of denying that it was even an issue, that this has even happened really in Virginia and it's anything anyone should be concerned about. The, some on the left are, are very wedded to a story about all of this, that all of this is kind of astroturf operation. You have like rich right-wingers who you know, spend money to hire uh, activists and protesters to go out and make a ruckus at school meetings and so forth to get on the news. And I don't know if there's any of that going on, but I really don't think that's the main driver of a lot of this. Now, I'm not saying that uh, these the motives of the people who are protesting this are always the purest in the world, but I do think there's a real issue here. And it's one on which uh, Democrats, I think, are vulnerable. And I think that if Terry McAuliffe loses, it's going to be partly a result of being on the wrong side of these cultural issues, combined with the fact that Youngkin, again, we're bracketing Trump here, Youngkin has been, I think, pretty cagey in trying to sort of sound Trumpian while never taking the hardest kind of most repulsive Trumpian line. So he sort of speaks against vaccine mandates, but yet when asked, so are you saying you're against vaccines? No, no, not at all. Vaccines are great. It should just be a choice for the individual. And similarly, on issues about election integrity, he like pounds really hard on the podium about how we have to look into these claims of fraud. But then he's asked, is Joe Biden the president? Did he win? And and in our degraded democratic system that he says, actually, yes, Joe Biden is the legitimate president. And we all kind of politely applaud and say, yay, he's actually not insane. But in the contemporary Republican Party, that makes Youngkin kind of a moderate, which is ridiculous, but it's, hey, it's where we are. And so the combination of McAuliffe maybe on the the vulnerable side of some cultural issues with Youngkin sort of placing himself in a kind of overlap of the most electorally um, encouraging or positive position for Republicans while avoiding the most polarizing and extreme nonsense of the Marjorie Taylor Greene people in the party could be the sweet spot, especially in a, in a state like Virginia, which is so diverse uh, and has so many more liberal areas in the North now. You know, you put it all together and uh, it might just work for them. So Ian, like Damon, I'm going to bracket Trump for a moment. We'll come back to him because he has gotten involved in this race and that may be McAuliffe's lifeline. But I live in Virginia and I can tell you that I can sense 
that, first of all, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the way the Biden administration is going and with, you know, the disarray, Dems in disarray meme is out there, right? At the moment, it may get resolved. But for now, there's a, there's a disillusionment reflected in the polls. There's that. There's the fact that Virginia usually, though it voted for Biden by 10 points, it usually goes the other direction to the sitting president in its gubernatorial races. And then finally, I think these cultural issues are really where it's at in American politics now. I really don't think it's all about money or taxes or spending. I think that people, especially the the all-important suburban voters, you know, are going to want a governor who will push back against now it's not CRT. CRT is not taught in Virginia schools, but it's also not correct to say as McAuliffe did, that it's just a racist dog whistle because there are workshops for teachers featuring Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo. And there are guidances that you can find in the schools about how to teach these racially very sensitive subjects in a way that does make certain white parents feel that their children are being encouraged to see themselves as already guilty of something just by virtue of the color of their skin. And that is really dangerous. Finally, there's one other thing. The movement on the left that has taken hold, you notice that Bill de Blasio has announced he's eliminating all the gifted and talented programs in New York. In Northern Virginia, there's a very famous high school called Thomas Jefferson or TJ. It's a magnet school established, I think, in 85. It was 71% Asian students because it was based on an admissions test, among other things, grades too, but mostly it relied on a, a series of admission tests. And the, the Democrats decided to change that so that it would be more inclusive. And I have to say that is also a real problem as I see it in this race. Oh, Mona, I want so badly to stick with your kind of opening framing of trying to bracket the elephant in the room. I want to, to do that. Um, and, and the reason I struggle to do that is because these every issue you mention, are, are, they're such important issues. They're things that this country needs to wrestle with, uh, how we deal with race, how we teach in schools, how we handle admissions tests, all these things are really important. But if we don't have a free and democratic society and we're governed the way that you know a country like Hungary is going, then then good luck to us actually working through these things and having sort of debates about them and having elections about them. All that goes out the window. And so I just find it hard, even though I know it's a political reality in a state like Virginia, to really get into all of these important questions when there is this giant storm looming. And so Trump has a way of breaking out of the brackets we try to put him in, and and, I, and he's just going to break out of it here for me in this way, which is that I think the problem that Youngkin faces is that he is participating in what I consider the magical thinking of Republicans around the country right now. And the magical thinking is this. It's that I want there to be a sane Republican Party again in the future, and I want to be a part of it. Fill in the blank, Mike Gallagher, Glenn Youngkin, Elise Stefanik, whoever, Ben Sass, whoever we are. I want to be a part of it. And in order to get there, I have to do a little bit of playing footsie with Trumpism. And as da I think Damon did a very good job of sort of the way that you kind of try to thread that needle. Um, and if I do that, if I throw a little bit of meat to the Trumpist base, then somehow, and this is where the magic comes in, magically, first, Trump will disappear. And this is the even more magical thing. And then second, Trumpism will disappear. And I will find myself again in the midst of a Republican Party where I could sort of kind of advocate for my traditional conservative values. Now, the reason that's magical thinking is if you are going to play footsie and throw meat to sort of Trumpist theories like oh, election fraud is rampant, we need election security task forces, what you are doing is you are deepening and hardening those Trumpist feelings among the base so that even if somehow Trump himself goes away, you've actually guaranteed that Trumpism will outlast him and you will not be able to sort of put the genie back in the bottle or get Frankenstein's monster back into the uh, into the laboratory. And that is the magical thinking that people like Youngkin are engaged in when instead what really is needed at this point in time is I go back to when David Duke endorsed Donald Trump. And do we remember what Donald Trump had to do? 
he had to disavow the endorsement. Why? Because we had certain norms in our society that said somebody who was not affiliated with the Ku Klux Klan needs to basically be told, nope, you are not part of our coalition. You are not acceptable. You are not good for the health of the country. And I reject that endorsement. And what that does is it not only rejects Duke's power, but it rejects the power that Duke has over any voters out there to become part of that movement. And until we start to see Republicans like Glenn Youngkin or Mike Gallagher or Elise Stefanik do that, we are going to have Trumpism with or without Trump, and they are not going to find themselves on the other side of this of this period, this era. Uh, well said. All right. Well, Linda, Mr. Trump in the brackets, he, he's already out of the brackets. Um, yesterday, uh, there was a Take Back Virginia rally that was hosted by a right-wing talk radio host named John Fredericks, and it featured Steve Bannon and Amanda Chase, who has called herself Trump in heels. Um, she has been a surrogate for Yunkin out on the campaign trail, drumming up support in the Trumpier parts of the state, and Yunkin has been happy to accept her help. So they had this Take Back Virginia rally. Trump phones in his support for Yunkin. Okay, Yunkin was not there, though he had phoned into the John Frederick show earlier in the week to thank him for staging this rally. And here's the piece de resistance. They began the festivities by saluting a flag that they say was carried in the, quote, peaceful protests on January 6th. I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> I'm utterly speechless. Yeah. Uh, I thought uh, leading up that you were going to uh, Trump's statement that he released saying that unless he's declared winner of the 2020 election, that Republicans will uh, and should stay away from the polls in 2022 and 2024. To which I say, from his lips to God's ears. <laughs> right, right. He did say that. <laughs> yeah, he did say that. Look, I. Ian is absolutely right. I mean, those of us who are conservatives and who have basically bitten our tongues and, you know, withheld our reservations about voting for some Democrats, even though we may adamantly disagree with them on certain policy issues, but instead voted for them because the alternative was to repudiate democracy. You know, we're going to have a choice to make in the upcoming elections. I will tell you that Youngkin, uh, with whom I probably agree on more policy issues than I do uh, Terry McAuliffe, because of his cowardice, because of the sort of gamesmanship that he's engaged in during this election, I'm not sure if I were a voter in Virginia that I could vote for him. Again, I think I would end up voting for Terry McAuliffe simply as a repudiation to what Trumpism means for the Republican Party. I wish that candidates like McAuliffe uh, would listen to the Moni Charons and Bill Crystals and Linda Chavez and others uh, in the conservative movement and learn to understand exactly what you said, Mona, which is that these cultural issues are what really are giving Trump uh, support among certainly suburban voters. You know, all those independents on whom Democrats must rely in order to win elections in states like Virginia are, you know, they, they may be independents, but those cultural issues drive them. So I, I'm very nervous about how this election is, is going to turn out. And I think McAuliffe has not been taking the best advice. Um, Bill Galston, I'm going to ask you to put on your political science hat. Um, for the record, by the way, I wrote a column a few weeks ago saying that uh, I was going to vote for Terry McAuliffe uh, for all the reasons Linda stated. But that's I'm just one vote in Virginia, and the race is incredibly close, according to the polling. And so let me start with this, Bill. Do we trust the polls because I think we've had enough experience now, what with 2016 and 2020, to know that the Trump voter does not typically answer polls? Well, that's one problem. The second problem is that these off-year elections always rest on turnout and not aggregate sentiment. And everything I'm seeing suggests that Republicans, both Trumpists and moderates who may have supported Biden, 
are, for different reasons, quite mobilized, more mobilized than Democrats. So I'm putting no stock whatever in the polls, except the fact that it's close in the polls suggests to me that it will be even closer in reality. When the chips are down, what is it? Less than three weeks until the election? Mm -hmm. But let me just focus on what I think the heart of the political matter is. Mona, you began by stating correctly that uh, Joe Biden won the state by more than 10 percentage points. That was just 11 months ago. And there will be panic in the Democratic Park if Glenn Youngkin wins this election. It will be regarded, I think properly, as an important leading indicator of what's going to happen in November 2022. And there are indications from past Virginia gubernatorial elections that it's not entirely off base to regard the results of that election as a leading indicator for the midterms. So everything that the Democrats have been assuming or hoping will be called into question. I don't care whether it's a five-point Youngkin victory or a five-vote Youngkin victory. (laughs) doesn't matter. If he wins after the dust settles, that is going to be the equivalent of a grenade tossed into the Democratic foxhole. There will be a lot of bodies and a lot of scurrying for safety. And the tensions that now exist within the Democratic Party will be further exacerbated. Uh, The progressives will have one interpretation of the defeat. The moderates will have a very different interpretation of the defeat. McAuliffe himself has said that it will be a blow to his candidacy if the bipartisan infrastructure bill is not passed before Election Day in Virginia. I think politically speaking, that's a fair comment. But in the context of the current low-grade warfare, or not so low-grade warfare between different factions in the Democratic Party, that is one way of setting up the progressives to be accused of having created a political landscape in which Democratic candidates can't win or have a lesser chance of winning. Uh, That charge will not be unfair. It will also be inflammatory. So this is a game in Virginia for very high stakes. And I don't think that Democrats can take any comfort whatsoever in what we've seen in Virginia so far. And I agree with those who say that McAuliffe has taken a pretty good hand and has not played it optimally. Uh, He seems to have lost a step uh, just in political reflexes since the last time he ran. Not sure why exactly, except that I don't really think he is comfortable at all in a landscape dominated by cultural issues rather than economic development issues, which are his sweet spot. You know, Bill, I'd almost be tempted to vote for Yunkin uh, and hope that he won if I thought that it would be interpreted by the Democratic Party as a lesson to move to the center <laughs> and be more popular. You know, there's that phrase popularism, which, uh, which right. Matt Iglesias likes to talk about and others, you know, do things that are broadly popular, downplay things that aren't so popular, and then build your coalition. But I, I'm not at all sure that that's how it would be interpreted. I mean, the progressives have a tendency to say, we may not win again, so therefore, we have to do everything now uh, and just shove it through while we can. I mean, I'm not really sure that it would be interpreted as a rebuke. What do you think? I'm with Winston Churchill on this one, who once said, when in doubt, do the right thing, uh, because you can really easily outsmart yourself. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean about my vote. I was only no, no, kidding. No, 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 no. But oh. you know, I, I knew you were conducting a sort of a contrary yeah. Contrary to fact, speculation. Yeah. But I agree with your assessment of what would happen if Youngkin did win. And uh, the proposition that McAuliffe would have won, but for the progressives' refusal to allow the bipartisan infrastructure bill to go through, is one I think that the majority of the Democratic Party, as currently constituted, would reject, sadly. Mm. 
Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to call an audible and say we will get to our other topic that we had discussed another time. And we'll go now to our final segment, highlight or low light of the week. And Linda Chavez, let's start with you. Well, I'm not sure that this fits either the category highlight or low light. I want to draw attention to an issue and an article that I think deserve our attention. It appeared this week in Politico in the magazine itself, and it was written by Ben Schreckinger. It is called Hiding the Ball, Hunter Biden Complicates White House Anti-Corruption Push. Now, Schreckinger has written a book about the Bidens, and obviously this magazine article, I think, you know, talks about some of the issues that he's covered in that book. But it focuses on Hunter Biden and particularly the new sort of cause celebrity on the right about Biden. And that is his putting up for absolutely astronomical prices that are undeserved because he has no track record in the art world of a series of paintings. And the White House has totally mismanaged this. Uh, Somehow they think that keeping secret from Biden and the public uh, who it is that buys these paintings and how much they spent for them uh, is the way out of this ethical morass. And I would just say that uh, I think Joe Biden has a problem on his hands, as he has for many years uh, with uh, his son. And it, I think, does uh, tarnish the Biden administration's effort to get out of the kind of ethical morass we have been through over the last four years with the Trump administration and the Trump uh, family. So I, I think the article is worth reading, and I think the mainstream media ought to be paying more attention to this than they are. Okay. Damon Linker. My selection this week will have to do with news that actually has come out just today, uh, Thursday, about how the committee investigating the January 6th Capitol Hill insurrection announced that it is moving forward to hold Trump ally Steve Bannon in criminal contempt for refusing to comply with its subpoena. They've subpoenaed a number of individuals who were in touch with Trump through the period leading up to the insurrection. And uh, a number of them are uh, simply refusing to appear on grounds of executive privilege, presidential privilege, which especially in in Bannon's case is particularly risable since he had nothing to do with the government at any point there. And Trump's personal claims to privilege seem extremely broad and open-ended and haven't really been specified. It's very hard to imagine uh, how him sitting in the Oval Office is speculating about how he can uh, activate a coup to keep himself president could be covered by traditional notions of presidential privilege. But whatever the case, I'm pleased to see that the uh, congressional committee is actually upping the stakes a little bit for Bannon. The honest truth is it's probably pretty unlikely that this will go very far. It could take a very long time if it actually uh, became a criminal charge. There are lots of long long history of people fighting subpoenas and uh, getting out of them in the end due to court rulings and so forth. So it's by no means decisive, but uh, I like anything connected to criminal contempt being attached to uh, Steve Bannon because he's an individual about whom I I have criminal levels of contempt. So this is, uh, you know, (laughs) makes me makes me cheered slightly here for about five minutes. So there you go. So it makes you pine for the early 19th century when the Congress actually had a little jail downstairs in the basement (laughs) where they could hold people in contempt, literally. (laughs) Well, maybe not quite that far, but I do find the whole whole Trump crew and the way they, like, I, I had a kind of sarcastic, contemptuous tweet about this the other day, like a kind of imagined dialogue. So Congress says, here's a subpoena, and then the Trump Republicans say F you. And then Congress says, question mark, like, wait, well, now what do we do? <laughs> right. uh, and it sort of implies that Congress itself is worthy of contempt. So I'm glad to see Congress stand up for itself a little bit and say, actually, no, you're the one in contempt, my friend. So. All right. Bill Galston. 
Well, I'm going to be an overachiever today and mm. put both a low light and a highlight okay. on the table. The low light, alas, is the convening of the Second International Conference on National Conservatism in Orlando at the end of this month. All I can say is that if you love Viktor Orban, as the Trumpist right does, then you'll be thrilled by this conference. It is now becoming abundantly clear that Viktor Orban's style of authoritarian majoritarianism is what the Trump right of the Republican Party sees as its ultimate goal for the United States. And uh, the conference will lay bare for all the theory of Trump's practice. Uh, and I urge people who care about these things to follow and track this conference, to write about it, and to be as clear as possible about what the intentions of those attending the conference actually are and what kind of America they would bring about if they had the power to do it. Uh, my highlight is a book that I'm reading by a former colleague of mine at the Brookings Institution, Rush Doshi, called The Long Game, colon, China's Grand Strategy to Displace American Order. It is, I think, the most comprehensive study of the strategic goals and the tactics that have guided the People's Republic of China for many decades now. I know some China scholars disagree with Doshi on this point, but he makes a very compelling case for the essential continuity of strategic goals between pre-Xi Jinping leaders and the current administration in China. I find it enormously encouraging that he now occupies the China desk in the National Security Council and has the opportunity to persuade the council to be guided by this strategic analysis. Okay. Bill, I would just note that one of the recent national conservatism conferences was held in Rome, perhaps to summon the ghost of Mussolini. And uh, But now they're in Orlando, so maybe their muse is Mickey Mouse. Uh, so. <laughs> All right. Uh, Ian Basson. Well, I'm going to end us on a high note, and uh, I'm going to follow Bill's lead to Eastern Europe and his references to Viktor Orban, but actually to a different country, and call our attention to an election that was held this week in the Czech Republic, where the ever more illiberal and anti-democratic Prime Minister, Andrei Babish, was defeated, and he was defeated by a coalition of entities and parties that normally don't agree on much, don't work together, but they banded together and united because they saw it as absolutely essential that they address the anti-democratic threat that they saw Babish as, as playing. And I think that's apropos, obviously, of us all together on this podcast and the movement that we're trying to create. And I actually, I wrote a piece in The Bulwark recently saying that that's really what we need in the United States is people who may disagree about everything, policy, politics under the sun, but agree about democracy fundamentally. And I want to end by reading from the New York Times account of this election, where the Times wrote, for the past decade, populists like Mr. Babish have often seemed politically invincible, rising to power across Central and Eastern Europe as part of a global trend of strongman leaders disdainful of democratic norms. But on Saturday, the seemingly unbeatable Mr. Babish was defeated because opposition parties put ideological differences aside and joined together to drive out a leader they fear has eroded the country's democracy. And so with apologies and perhaps a quote from the Mandalorian, this is the way. Hear, hear. Oh, Bill, did you want to just say something about the Czech election? Uh, just two words. Now what? <laughs> uh, this coalition of opposition you know, was difficult to put together. Putting together a governing agenda in the face of this will be even more difficult and I think that it will be at least as hard to hold this coalition together as a governing coalition for any length of time as it will be to hold the current coalition government in Israel together. Or the Democratic Party in the United States. Details. Right. Details. <laughs> 
All right. I would like to flag a piece that uh, the Washington Post ran on its opinion page. It is by Dagmar Degbrut, who is an associate professor of environmental history at Georgetown. And the piece makes the point that the panic about climate change has far outstripped the threat. This professor is very much a believer in taking steps to you know, fight climate change and uh, to minimize emissions and so on and so forth. But he argues, look, um, this is not an insoluble problem. And when you see polls of young people, their estimation uh, of what the danger is, is really out there. I mean, actually, this isn't in the piece, but I will just cite some data from a recent University of Bath survey that spoke to 10,000 people in 10 countries young people between the ages of 16 and 25, and they found that 77% described the future to be frightening, and 56% agreed with the view that humanity is doomed. Now, look, if we convey to young people that there is absolutely no hope, how do we expect that they will even be activists for climate change? I mean, if there's absolutely no hope, why bother? And of course, that's just not remotely the case. Uh, It's a problem. Humanity has faced other problems. Technology is coming to the rescue in lots of ways, and we have diminished emissions significantly. Um, So there really is a need for a rule of reason here and uh, concern, but not, um, but not doomsaying on the part of, uh, of everyone so that young people don't lose hope in the future. All right. Um, I want to thank Ian Basson for joining us and thank you all for listening. And we will return next week as every week.